Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, please check out my Amazon author page, where you will find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books for $10 paperback and $2.99 ebook download, including the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. And in that book, there's a story about a guy I worked with who stole a horse and carriage for a wild ride through Central Park. All my books make great $10 paperbacks. Order them now. You'll have them way before Christmas. Wrap them up and throw them in your stocking stuffer. So before we get started, I want to thank my listeners for all your support. Since I launched this podcast a couple of months ago, I can't believe the amount of uploads or downloads I'm getting. I'm averaging about 400 per episode. That means a lot to me. And what I want to start doing is if you know you have an Instagram or Twitter account, Look me up at VicFerrari50 and send in some questions. And what I'd like to do is, because I see that with other podcast hosts, people have questions. I mean, I'm telling my stories, but ultimately, I'm sure there's a lot of you that have questions about the New York City Police Department or police procedure. So just go on Twitter and Instagram. Look me up at VicFerrari50 and send in a question. I mean, as long as it's not ridiculous, I'll, I'll answer it. So what I'm going to do this this week is I'm going to tell a story from my upcoming book. My new book is going to be called NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty. That should be out before Christmas. It's in, pre, it's in production right now. And there's a story in there called The Coors Light Quartet. And when I was a teenager, I mean in the, in the early 80s, you know, we wanted to go out and have a good time and drink beer, etc. But we were too young. The drinking age in New York was originally 18. Then it went to 19. Then it went to 21. And that was bad luck for me. So what my friends and I would do is we would hang around the liquor store or the neighborhood deli. And we would solicit morally flexible adults that hopefully would take pity on us and purchase us a couple of six packs of beer. Before you knew it, we were in the back of a schoolyard somewhere having some brewskis. And, you know, we weren't bad kids, but I'm sure we were making a lot of noise and we were a pain in the ass. And eventually either the cops rolled by and saw us or someone got pissed off and they called 911 on us. The cops would show up and they would break our beer or pour it out. And that always used to rub me the wrong way because we really weren't bothering anybody. And I always used to tell myself, you know what, when I become a cop, I'm never going to do this. I'm not going to be one of those guys that becomes a hypocrite. At 16 years old, 17 years old, I had life all figured out. I was never going to do that sort of thing. I was going to leave teenagers alone, and I was just going to be one of the good guys. But while they were pouring out my beer, I, did, I would pick their brains. As mad as I was, I would ask them a ton of questions. I was, I was somewhat polite, but, uh, but annoyed, and then I would go on my way. Ten years later... I'm working in the 50th precinct in the Riverdale section of the Bronx, and after a couple of years, my partner and I had worked ourselves into the precinct anti-crime unit, and I've talked about that in the past. It's not undercover. You're in an unmarked car, you're driving around the neighborhood in plain clothes, and you're looking for robberies and burglaries in progress. So it's the early 90s, and there was a gang of these burglars that were hitting commercial establishments across the Bronx, but they had hit Riverdale pretty hard. And what these guys would do is, they would go on the roofs of buildings, they'd set off the alarm for a couple of days to time the police response, and then when the cops got tired of going there, they'd wait a little while, and then what they would do is they would cut a hole in the roof, they would come into supermarkets and banks, 
And then they would get into these locations and these guys were like big time safe crackers. They would use burning rods and open up safes and, and they would, you know, these scores were big time money. I think they hit the bank Lumi on um, Fordham Road once. They were in there for a weekend and got walked out of there with probably close to a million dollars. So we knew we had a problem in the precinct. So my partner and I were driving around the Riverdale shopping malls about 10 o'clock at night because the shopping mall had a food emporium and it also had a bank. So we're driving around, it's a cold October night, and I go in the back of this shopping center and I see a bunch of young boys hanging around a loading dock. So as we roll up, the, the boys start picking up their, their beers in a bag and they look like they're gonna run. So my partner goes over the PA system and says, hey guys, don't make me chase you. So the boys stop, we roll up, and I said, what are you doing? And they said, we're drinking beer. So I said, all right. And they said, are you going to take our beer? And I said, no, do you want me to? And they laughed and they relaxed. And for the next 20 minutes or so, they were asking me a lot of questions about the NYPD. How long have you been a cop? How long did it take you to get into plain clothes? Have you ever shot anyone? The same questions I was asking the cops when I was a young boy. And it brought back a lot of fond, fond memories. And I, you know, I'll never forget, it was a Sunday night. And I go, don't you guys have school tomorrow? And they said, no, we go to Catholic High School. We're off for Columbus Day. I said, all right, good enough. Do me a favor. And it was like they had two, it was like four of them and they had like two six packs. None of them were drunk. And I said, guys, do me a favor. When you're done, clean up your mess and go home. Thank you, officer. We really appreciate it. And my partner and I went on our way. And my partner and I in the car were talking about how it reminded us of how we were as kids. So the following weekend, we're in the same neighborhood just cruising around. And a radio run comes over, a robbery on progress on West 263rd Street and Riverdale Avenue. And a bus driver, a Liberty Lines bus driver, had been robbed at gunpoint. And the description was four male whites and they were fleeing south on Riverdale Avenue. So my partner and I were literally around the block. There goes the four young boys. We put the cherry light on the police car. We jump out. Police don't move. We usher the boys against the wall and we start tossing them patting him down for weapons. And the boy, oh, and what the description was, the one with the gun had a New York Giants uh, red and white, red and blue New York Giants jacket. So obviously the jacket stood out, that's why we stopped him, we put him against the wall, we're patting him down for a weapon. And the boys immediately recognize us and they go, officer, don't you remember us? And I had forgotten, you know, it was a week had passed and I go, where do I know you from? Don't you remember us in the back of food apparently? I said, all right. As we're patting him down, my partner recovers a Black Daisy BB gun from, I think it was the kid with the Giants jacket. And I said, where are you guys coming from? And they went from really chatty to they got quiet. So we went over the radio. We told the radio car that had the victim to bring him over to do what's called a show up. So another police car shows up with this old white haired bus driver, Irish guy. He gets out of the, bu he gets out of the back of the police car and he walks over and he goes, that's them. I said, okay. So we start handcuffing the boys and we piled them. We had a Ford LTD, if memory serves me correctly. And it was a big car. So we piled the four boys into the back of the Ford LTD and we start heading into the precinct. And the boys are like begging us, please let us go. Can you give us a break? And I'm like, how am I going to give you a break? I said, you just robbed a guy at gunpoint. And one of the kids said, but officer, it's a BB gun. I go, well, how is the victim supposed to know that? I go, boys, you scared an old man by pointing a BB gun at him demanding money. I know what you're saying, but it's a robbery. So we get him into the precinct. We search them. We go through their things. And another one of the boys has a $50 bill on him. 
So the victim comes into the precinct, and he's an old man. He's a nervous wreck. I think we had EMS look at him because he was so shaken. And he's popping those nitroglycerin pills. My grandfather used to take those things that if you're going to have a heart attack. And once he calmed down enough, he tells us the story. And what had happened was he's sitting at 263rd Street and Riverdale Avenue waiting for a shift to begin. He notices the four teenage boys kind of milling around the bus stop. And they start pounding on those folding doors of the bus. And he tells them, well, I'm not leaving for another 15 minutes. So the kid, I, again, I think it's the kid with the New York Giants jacket, shoves the black BB gun through the folding doors and demands money. Well, the old man shits a brick. He says, okay, okay. He reaches into his pocket. He, I, he had a $50 bill. He slid it through the folding doors. One of the boys snatched it. And they head off down Riverdale Avenue. So now we're in the precinct and we're fingerprinting them and forward, you know, we're doing all the paperwork. And uh, one of the boys says, how much trouble are we in? I says, you're in a lot. You're being charged with a felony. And I, they, you just, they just couldn't understand the gravity of what was going to happen to them. And one of the boys said, well, is this going to prevent me from being a police officer? I go, guys, what do you think? I said, you're in deep shit. So after we were done all the paperwork, we piled them back into the car. And we bring them down to Bronx Central Booking. And for those of you who have ever been down to Bronx Central Booking, the Bronx Courthouse is in a lousy neighborhood. After dark, there's really nothing around. It's like a barren wasteland down there. We pull up and we're taking them out of the car in handcuffs. And they're looking. They had never been to this part of the Bronx before. They're four Catholic high school kids from Riverdale. They were way out of their element. So we're walking them up to the building. And you can tell, like, they, were from chat they went from chatty to being really quiet. So we get buzzed in and, you know, it's a correctional facility. So there's steel doors slamming and all sorts of smells in there. And the boys are shitting a brick. So we take the handcuffs off them. And now they're following us around through this correctional facility like lost puppies. And in Bronx Central Booking, what happens is you go through this narrow hallway through a magnetometer. And then you have these large cells in the back. They're called bullpens. And that's where people stay. People that have been arrested, you wait in there. It's almost like your stomach. You go into the bullpens and then you go up. Well, your stomach, you would go down, but in the court system, you go up. Then you go up to more cells upstairs and then eventually you get called to see a judge. But in the Bronx with the volume of arrest, you can be in Bronx Central booking for days, especially back then. So we bring them into the bullpens and the bullpen had an all-star cast of drunks and scumbags that have been arrested throughout the borough that night. So now they're going into the corrections department. Corrections takes over. So you get this salty correction officer. He walks over. He throws the boys four manila envelopes, and he starts barking at him. He goes, guys, take off your belts and shoelaces and stick everything in your pockets in these envelopes. So one of the boys says, well, why do you want our shoelaces? And he goes, well, I don't want you guys to be hanging yourselves in here tonight. And that's when reality really set in because they thought they were going to Spotford which is the juvenile correctional facility. And I said, no, guys. I said, you're over 16 years old. You're charged with a felony. You're in the big leagues now. So once they get locked in the bullpen, they slam that, they slam that gate. And uh, I said, good luck, guys. And uh, one of the boys comes walking up to the cell, and he grips like the grimy bars with his, his hands. And he goes, do you really mean that? I said, guys, before tonight, I liked you. I said, now we're on the other side of the law. I says, I can't help you out. You know, it's, it is what it is. So I left. And it was, a, I believe it was a Friday night. So they weren't going to see a judge till Monday. And uh, from what I remember, they got released on Monday to their parents. And uh, a few days later, my partner and I get a subpoena to come down to the Bronx courthouse to testify before a grand jury with the witness about the incident. 
So when I get down to the DA's office, the DA, she's giddy. She's like in a really good mood. And I says, what's up? Did they take a plea? She said, no. She says, they're going to testify. I says, who's going to testify? She says, um, the perps, the four kids, they're going to testify before the grand jury. I go, why would they do that? It, let me take a step back. When you get arrested, it's highly unusual for the bad guy or the perp or the arrestee to testify before a grand jury because that testimony, can, if you decide to take that to trial, so you're going to grand jury, you're going to testify hoping that the grand jury feels you, finds your story credible and maybe will dismiss the case. But all in reality, it's stacked. It's like going to a casino. I mean, they'll indict a ham sandwich. And what can happen is once you testify, that's on the record. So say you take this to trial a year or two later, the district attorney can quiz you and cross-examine you or cross-examine your testimony. So you, you're kind of giving the state one more thing for them to hang you with. So I asked the DA, I go, that's highly unusual, isn't it? And she said, it is highly unusual. I said, well, don't they have representation? Because anytime someone has a lawyer, the first thing a lawyer is going to tell you is keep your mouth shut. Don't say a word. She said, all four of them have four separate attorneys. She says, but I think their legal strategy is they're going to go in there and tell the grand jury that it was a terrible mistake and gone wrong and they're sorry. And I says, well, that's not going to work. She goes, I know it's not going to work. She says, but, you know, it's going to make my life easier if they decide to take this to trial. So later on that day, my partner and I testify. We go back to the office. She says, thanks. And as my partner and I are going to the elevators, who do we run into? The four teenage boys with their parents and four attorneys. And the boys had definitely cleaned up since the last time I saw them. The New York Giants jacket was gone. They all were sporting fresh haircuts. Um, they were all in their Catholic high school uniforms. I'm not going to say the name of the Catholic high school. And... Um, they, they kind of gave me a nod, the boys at the elevator. It was an uncomfortable silence, and I nodded back. And uh, I forget who started the conversation, but one of the, the parents said something to me. And I said, yeah, they made a terrible mistake. And he said, terrible mistake? They've ruined their lives. And it started getting a little chippy. Um, I wasn't arguing with them, but you could tell the parents were upset. A, their kids had gotten arrested. These weren't rich people. They were working class people. And now every single one of them had to hire an attorney. You know, their kids' lives are hanging in the balance. So the four, the elevator arrives, and on cue, the four attorneys quickly usher all the kids and the parents in the elevator. And we waited, obviously, for the next, my partner and I waited for the next elevator to go down. And I'll never forget my partner goes, I guess the meter's running with those attorneys. I said, I guess so. So later on, um, about a month or two later, I found out through the district attorney's office that all four boys had eventually, all four of them had taken a, a felony plea conviction with no jail time. So what happened was they all took a felony plea, meaning they're, they're now convicted felons at 16 years old, which is going to impact their lives with the ability to vote or find a job or you know go into the military or whatever. It's, it, it's just kind of hanging over your head. And in addition to taking the felony conviction, they all had to take, I think they got three years of probation. So for three years, you got to meet with a probation officer every month or week. And, you know, you get drug tested. It's like being, you're treated like a child for the duration of your probation. So that, that's a story that really, I, when I, I made over 600 arrests in my NYPD career. And I was involved in thousands of others. And rarely did I give anyone 
any any of them a second thought because the way I looked at it was whatever was going to happen was going to happen, and that was in the hands of the criminal justice system. But 30-something years later, those, those arrests still haunt me because in the back of my mind, I realized had I maybe dumped their beer that night, brought them into the precinct, called their parents, maybe they would have gotten punished and... You know, they would have been off the street that faithful night and not done something stupid like rob that bus driver. And the ironic thing is, a couple of years after this incident, I go off to the narcotics division. And uh, I've talked about that on other episodes. I really didn't like it. And there was a lieutenant there that I recognized. And this guy was now in his mid-40s. And this guy was a cop in my precinct 10 years earlier, and he was one of the guys that used to bust my balls all the time and pour out my beer. And now I'm looking at him, you know, he's a middle-aged man, he's in his mid-40s, he's got gray hair like me, he's reading the newspaper, and I walk over to him one day, I go, Lieutenant, do you remember me? And he looks at me and he goes, should I? I said, yeah. I says, uh, in the 80s, I said, you and your partner used to, you know, come into the schoolyard and pour out my beer and bust my balls. And he looked me up and down, he takes off his readers and he stares at me and he goes, well, I see you turned out okay and went back to reading his newspaper. So looking back, that lieutenant, while he was a cop and many other cops from that precinct pouring out my beer was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it kept me from being comfortable with my newfound testosterone. And I'm grateful for it and I really wish I would have done the same thing for those boys. Uh, let's see. Um, I'll tell you a story from my personal life. So a couple of months ago, my stomach wasn't feeling too well. And I go to see the gastro doctor and he's looking at my chart. And he says, when was the last time you had a colonoscopy? I said, 10 years ago. And I knew it was coming. So the first thing he says is, well, you should go again. And I'm like, oh, I hate those things. He goes, yeah, but you, you have to go. So he schedules me an appointment. And anyone who's had a colonoscopy you know it's a giant pain in the ass, no pun intended. The night before, you have the prep, you're drinking all this stuff. You can't be with, you have to be within 10 feet of a bathroom where you're going to have an accident. You're fasting for 30 something hours. And lucky me, I had to be at the facility at 6.30 in the morning. So I barely got any sleep. I'm really grumpy. And I, I wasn't having any anesthesia. I have a huge fear of anesthesia. When I was a boy, I had a terrible incident with it. Every medical procedure I've ever had, I don't have anesthesia. Yeah, I know it's painful, it's stupid, but I'm not doing the anesthesia. So while I'm laying there and they're checking my vitals before they're sending me in for the colonoscopy, the anesthesiologist is creeping around. I'm like, thank God this isn't the guy giving me anesthesia because the guy scared the living crap out of me. They wheel me in, they throw me on my side, yada, yada, yada. I get the colonoscopy and it was painful, but I'm glad I did it without the anesthesia because there's no recovery time with it. So they wheel me out and they bring me in this recovery room. And I says, well, I didn't have anesthesia. I want to go. And they says, no, no, we just got to wait about 15 minutes to make sure you have your vitals and everything. Everything's fine. I said, all right. So I'm making small talk with this nurse and she's asking me what I did for a living or what I do for a living. And I told her I'm a retired NYPD cop and I'm just telling her a couple of quick stories. And I hear this faint voice over the curtain and I hear, what's your tax number? And I said, who is that? She goes, oh, that's another patient. He's coming out of anesthesia. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I said, oh, and then I hear it again. What's your tax number? Now, for those of you who don't know, 
every NYPD member when you're hired is assigned a six-digit tax number. And you get that number the day you're sworn in. And you can tell the tax numbers are in sequential order. So it's in alphabetical order with your class. So when you get hired, say there's 1,200 recruits, every recruit gets a tax number and it goes in alphabetical order. So you can tell by a cop's tax number pretty much the year they came on the job. So I said, Who, who's yelling that? Were you on the job? And I hear, yeah. I go, where did you work? And he tells me the 8-3 and the 7-5. So I go, oh, a Brooklyn guy. He goes, what's your tax number? <laughs> so I said, so I tell him my tax number. And he goes, there's a pause. And I hear him go, oh, you're an old timer. And I go, old timer? I'm not old. I'm in my mid-50s. I go, what year did you come on the job? And he goes, 2010. I says, well, yeah, I was already off the job a couple of years when you came on. So we're talking through this curtain. The nurse is amused. So she says, okay, you can go. And I'm gathering up all my stuff. And I says, can I talk to him? She goes, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. So what I do is I go around. I go into his cubicle. And we're making small talk. Really nice guy. He's telling me that uh, he had a master's degree in something. He wanted to help people. He came on the job. And then he became disillusioned after a couple of years. And he couldn't wait to leave. And after 13 years, he did what's called vesting. So in the NYPD, you can leave early, but you're not going to get your full pension. You get a full pension if you do 20 years. You, you get a half pension if you leave after 10 years. So whenever you vest, you don't get to collect your pension until your 20th anniversary, and it's prorated. So you're going to get a lot less. But some guy, for some people, I mean, they, they get opportunities to do something else, and they have that money bank that's going to come to them eventually. So that's what they do. They vest out. So you can't throw a rock down here in Florida without hitting another NYPD member. And here I am talking to this cop who's in a daze, who's just coming out of his colonoscopy. So to break his balls, I shake his hand. And as I'm about to leave, I told him, listen, this is all a dream. This never happened. I doubt he's going to remember my name. I doubt he's going to remember I wrote a couple of books or I had a podcast. But if you're out there, reach out to me at... I'd like to thank a lot of you guys for tuning into my show. And every week I try, I, I, I check on Buzzsprout. It tells me where my listeners are from. So I always try to give a shout out. And this week's shout out is to Detroit, Michigan. Had eight people from Detroit listening last week. And thank you. I appreciate it. Melbourne, Australia, Tokyo, Japan, and Delta, Utah. And uh, let's see. If you work in law enforcement or would like to be a guest on my show, Drop me a note on Twitter or Instagram at VicFerrari50. My books make great Christmas presents. Just go to my, website, uh, my Amazon author page. And like I said, I have a new book coming out. And hopefully it'll be done by Christmas if this company can finish my editing and put my book cover together. It's called NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty. Look for it on uh, Look for it on, on Amazon. It'll be out a couple of weeks before Christmas. And remember, be sure to check out my Amazon author page. I've got six books. The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. Um, be, sure to be sure to check out my Amazon author page where you can, view all, you can view and preview all my NYPD books for free, including the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, NYPD Law and Disorder, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. That book's got a lot of stories about car thieves, uh, cases I worked on, a car thief's mind, a car, a, what goes on in a car thief's mind, what happens to your car after it's stolen, what happens in a chop shop, 
all sophisticated scams on how to steal your car. Actually, in this new book, I have a chapter called It's Easy to Steal a Pen, Easier to Steal a Car with a Pen than a, than a Screwdriver. Also, if you're Catholic or you got a sense of humor and you grew up in the Bronx, check out my book, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. That book is loaded with funny stories of myself and my brother growing up in the Bronx and getting in all sorts of trouble. Um, if, if, you, if you're a fan of my books, you know I often speak about my duplicitous younger brother, Fredo. Fredo did an episode uh, for me on this podcast. The episode is added on this podcast, and you can also check it out on my YouTube page. That's another thing. I have a YouTube page now, so just go to NYPD Through the Looking Glass on, on YouTube, and you'll be able to check out my book. And uh, I want to thank everyone uh, for tuning in. Uh, get a colonoscopy. It sucks, but, you know, <laughs> to find out that you're healthy and not have to worry about something for another five or ten years, and God forbid you got something growing inside of you, uh, again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and uh, I'll see everybody next week, and God bless, and good luck, and thank you again for tuning in.